Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Elgar, come down to the laboratory at once. Behold my latest creation. It's Gregor, Dr. Wolfenstein. And all I see is a teapot. Yes, precisely. You made a teapot. I know. It's amazing, right? For as long as I've been here, all you've ever made were monsters and other scourges of mankind. Right, that's all over. I want to use my genius for good. You see this teapot? It's reading your genome and picking out the healthiest tea for you. At the same time, it's scanning the electrical grid for the most efficient moment to turn itself on. It's also notifying Amazon that you're going to need more crumpets delivered by drone. We all know how you love your crumpets with your tea, Mordor. What's a crumpet? Just work with me here, you mealy-mouthed enemy of the people. We're getting to the good part. The teapot is also informing our garbage bins that more tea bags and crumpet waste are just minutes away so that the village trash pickup system can operate with maximum efficiency. Plus, I've put sensors in the garbage truck tires to relay information about potholes to City Hall. And the teapot is monitoring the butter pooling in the nooks and crannies of your crumpet and sending information about your diet and body fat content to a Facebook account where it can be analyzed by medical students at the University of Belize. I'm... I'm not sure I want that kind of information. Shut up, Megatron. Don't you see? I possess the knowledge to solve all of mankind's problems. They said I was mad at university, but I'm not mad. Am I, Pink Eye? I'm a utopian dreamer. Dr. Wolfenstein, why is the tea kettle pulsating? You don't seriously think I can get a teapot to do all those things without packing it with unstable isotopes, do you? I mean, that thing is loaded with thorium and radon. That doesn't sound... I know what I know what you're going to say. Now the second guessing begins. So instead, let's sit quietly and listen to this program about techno-solutionism. And now he's pledged to live as an Amish woman for one year. Colin McEnroe. That's my way of dealing with the confusion created by technology. I will be an Amish woman. I will get as far away from technology as I possibly can. But Harrison Ford can still come and visit me. Uh, all right. So we're going to talk about uh, techno-solutionism today. And if that term confuses you, it's a pretty simple term. It's, it's the notion that most of mankind's problems are amenable to some kind of technological fix um, or the question of whether they are. Uh, obviously, we... We, uh, every day, knowledge advances by leaps and bounds. We call that progress. Uh, but there's, you know, things that go along with progress and, and questions about whether you create worse problems uh, when you use technology to fix the problems you have. So to consider all that, it's a very small question. I, we should have no trouble wrapping this up in 49 minutes. But uh, Wendell Wallach is here. He's the chair of technology and ethics at the Yale Interdisciplinary Center for Bioethics. Jay, Jay Hughes is the executive director of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies at, Un- at Trinity College. We should say they are kind of the sunshine boys of futurism, the Jack <laughs> Lemon and Walter Matthau of futurism. We've had them on our show together lots of times. Also joining us by phone, we'll meet her in just a second, Kate Darling, a researcher at MIT Media Lab. Um, but, you know, so let's start out just to give people, so just so people kind of get a sense of what it is we're talking about. Let's walk through a really big problem. Actually, I'm 
going to put Kate Darling up on the board so she can chime in about that, too, as we go. But so and, and so, Jay, one of the last times you were on the show, uh, we were over at Watkinson School and we were talking about the future. And, and so the subject you, you brought up, the subject of geoengineering. I don't know if you use that term, but yeah. but let's look at let's think about the biggest problem facing mankind right now is probably climate change. Mm-hmm. And climate change could e- could speed up even faster than than we think it's going right now through various kinds of cyclical effects like Arctic ice melting, so more water gets exposed, which means more things melt, and it just gets worse and worse. We could really want to put the brakes on climate change really fast. So there are options that are already being investigated, which essentially amount to scientifically or technologically modifying the atmosphere of the Earth. I'll let you pick it up from there. What kinds of things uh, would we be talking about? Just to take a step back, I mean, it's a good case also for kind of illustrating the range of attitudes that people have about technology. and extreme Luddites who blame all social problems on technology or at least think that all technologies will make things worse. And so their typical solution for something like climate change would be for human beings to do less technology of whatever kinds they can and to get back more to the natural state. And at the other end, folks who think that uh, all we need is better technology in order to have solutions. Now, I'm someplace, I think I'm someplace in the middle, although admittedly uh, some people think I'm not. <laughs> um, and uh, in this particular case, I am a fan of geoengineering solutions be- for the reason that there are some things which are more amenable to magic bullets than others. In the case of climate solutions, you have this enormously complicated social engineering problem of trying to figure out how to com- uh, com- convince people to uh, reduce carbon emissions versus um, the simple problem, relatively simple, of how you reduce the, the temperature of the planet. So one of the solutions that people have looked at for geoengineering is to uh, spew bil- a couple billion tons of silicate dust into the atmosphere, which uh, we know from uh, volcanoes does cool down the planet. Now, it may have other unintended consequences. We have to do a lot of research. But solutions like that or carbon capture, uh, building a couple billion uh, machines that will suck carbon out of the atmosphere or uh, suck it into plants and into crops and things like that. So there are a lot of different geoengineering uh, possibilities out there. But the silicate silicate, uh, dust into the atmosphere is probably the cheapest of all the ones that have been proposed. And and just to make that clear, as you said, uh, I think Mount Pinatubo is our most recent example of this. This would basically create an environment, an atmospheric, stratospheric environment in which light from the sun would be reflected away from the planet as opposed to getting in and warming the planet. Exactly. All right. Wendell's just chomping at the bit. He, He wants to get going. All right. Well, some of the models actually do show that 50% of the radiation each year can be reflected back out of the atmosphere. So we know that much. But this is one of those wonderful kinds of solutions that on the surface it looks pretty good. But if you really go down into the details, it's not clear it's a solution at all and might not actually create larger problems than it's meant to solve. First of all, it does not solve global warming. It mitigates some of the impact of it year in and year out. Nobody knows what will happen if you spew this kind of sulfate into the atmosphere year in and year out. Um, You're really dealing with delicate feedback loops in the atmosphere. And the third issue is geopolitical. Once you move into this whole area of allowing various countries to tinker with weather for their own purposes, well, what happens if China, for example, decides that its monsoons aren't big enough and therefore it intervenes in weather to get 
greater monsoons, but in effect creates droughts in India or floods in Bangladesh. Yeah, Indonesia has a much bigger interest in stopping global warming than Siberia does. So, you know, they might blow off one of their volcanoes with an atomic weapon and piss the rest of us off. The uh, So, so uh, Kate Darling, you're listening to this conversation, and, you know, part of the— Part of the underlying psychology of this is what we really should do is eat our vegetables. In this case, eating our vegetables would mean just stop burning so many fossil fuels, right? That's how you slow down climate change. Um, On the other hand, as Jay suggested in his first comment, that's not happening. And it doesn't seem as though we as a species are capable of moderating our behavior enough to do this in what is basically the safe well-established way of solving this problem. So is that a good argument for injecting um, injecting some kind of reflective matter into the atmosphere, which might actually create a different kind of chain reaction, as Wendell's kind of suggesting, and who knows, extinguish all life on Earth? I mean, how, how, do, how do we sort out the, the risk-benefit here? I'm, Kate, I'm basically pl- uh, placing the fate of humankind in your hands. <laughs> And she's not there anyway. This, this could this could be this could be the the the, uh, the lesson we need. Typical well, for a technology I'll, show. I'll, so I'll bring it back to you, Jay. So yeah. here, he, I mean, here's part of the problem. We've already proven that we can't be trusted, right? Uh, uh, by, because we can't be trusted to well, stop uh, burning fossil fuels. But on the other hand, techno solutionism or geoengineering in this case sort of Im- implies that we have the judgment capacity to make a clear judgment that won't wipe out the human race and will solve the problem. There are a couple things that you can look at in any problem to try to figure out whether it's more amenable to a magic bullet or less. So one is, is there a clear cause and effect relationship between the problem and and the solution that can be got at with the technology? So for instance, with infectious disease, vaccines are a pretty clear uh, magic bullet. Now, you can also improve people's uh, the sanitation of people's water, uh, make them less poor, improve their education. All those things have an impact on infectious disease as well. But vaccines worked pretty well and were a lot easier to do than all those kinds of social engineering. Um, you know, healthcare costs we from administrative uh, overhead. You can probably fix that pretty easily by um, doing some uh, computerization of billing. Now, I would prefer to have a single-payer health care system, but that's a pretty heavy lift in American politics. And so if we can get to having the cost of American health care through computerization, that's probably a pretty good solution. There are other things which we just don't understand that well and which require really complicated solutions. So, for instance, computerization in education hasn't been a magic bullet because we don't understand what good pedagogy is and we don't have any clear evidence that any particular technology improves pedagogy. So I think there are things that are, which are better for magic bullets and things which are less good for it. Now, Wendell, I mean, one of the other sort of hazards uh, here, I mean, you, you talked about some countries maybe want a bigger monsoon or uh, more of a, a simulated volcano. But, I mean, one of the other hazards here is that, um, once again, eating our vegetables means burning less fossil fuels. But if you hand political leaders a technological solution, say, really, we're working on this, we can probably just sort of change the stratosphere so that, so, so that we reflect away the sunlight, I, I would imagine imagine they have even less incentive to lead in an appropriate way than they do now, although I'm not really sure whether how much worse it could possibly get. Well, that's why environmentalists hate some of these geoengineering solutions, because they think this is just going to give people permission to not change behavior. But there's also this broader problem that this that global warming isn't going to be solved by any one of these solutions. Even if we all gave up 
you know, our cars, we're living in a world where we're going to need three times the energy supply over the next 20 years just from the rising billions around the rest of the world. So that's not going to solve global warming, nor is any other one solution you look at. In the end, we may have to look at kind of the um, the apple pie version of a solution where there's just a number of different approaches we take to mitigate the effects of global warming. But yes, these kinds of technological solutions often give people the excuse not to do the hard decisions. It's a general principle to say that every problem needs both a technological and a social approach. But to say, though, for instance, we shouldn't have had um, vaccines because then we weren't going to cure the poverty and the education problems that also contribute to infectious disease is just demonstrably not true. People still wanted to fix those problems. And people will still want to have sustainable development growth around the planet and address carbon emissions, even if we try to experiment with geoengineering. Um, by the way, as we talk about all this stuff, uh, your comments are welcome. We're live here in the afternoon, 860-275-7266. That's 860 Six, six. Your comments and questions are welcome. We're talking about what's sometimes called techno-solutionism. Um, we're starting big, and we may work down a little bit smaller, a little bit more human scale, but why not uh, start with the most urgent thing, climate change and the possibility of addressing it uh, through geoengineering. So I think we do have Kate Darling back. Uh, she's a researcher at MIT Media Lab. Are you there? I'm here. Okay, you're definitely there now. Okay, so, you know, I've been listening to Wendell uh, and Jay talk this out, and and partly it's partly my fault, but one of the ways this sort of gets talked out is kind of a dialogue between scientists and world leaders, right? That the the scientists are going to try to come up with a solution, then they'll talk to the world leaders, and the world leaders will either implement that solution or not, and they'll do, either do it responsibly or irresponsibly. But it, there's at least one other point on this triangle, if not more, right? Corporations. I mean, ultimately, businesses get really involved in these kinds of questions, and businesses sometimes have other agendas than the pure public good. I know that's a shocking statement, Kate Darling, but I'm going to let you react to it. <laughs> I think that for all of these conversations, it's important to have all of the stakeholders involved and as many different parties with different interests, you know, contributing to the discussion of what to do as possible. So while corporations, you know, might not have uh, social good as their main interest, although some claim to, um, you know, it, it's not necessarily that their incentives are completely misaligned with social good. They actually could be aligned, but you do need to have other people in, in the discussion kind of shaping that and, and representing all the stakeholders, basically. Yeah, I mean, so Wendell, really what we're talking about sometimes is wisdom, right? I mean, there's there are, there are some corporations out there who are thinking probably right now, well, somebody's going to make a lot of money if, you know, if, if the, the geoengineering approach gets taken, if some kind of silicate thing or, or, or so, you know, some something gets injected in the atmosphere to, to fix climate change. Somebody's going to make a lot of money. It might as well be us. And meanwhile, we should hire a bunch of lobbyists also to talk to these world leaders to make sure our idea has, has, has preeminence. Um, so, so where does the wisdom come in? Where, where are, where's the group of people that we can absolutely trust to sort through those competing claims and make the good decision? Well, I don't know whether the wisdom lies yet. I mean, this has really been the, uh, the old platonic argument. And if you really want some philosopher king to run the country, where do you get the philosopher kings? And we all claim that we might be electable for those <laughs> positions, but most of us know we aren't. So that's that's not going to be a solution in any way, shape, or form. But I think wisdom has a very different meaning in this context. 
And what wisdom may be all about is, do we even really know what the problems are? Are we really trying to define the problem in a particular way that will then lead to particular kinds of solutions that are amenable to this technology or that technology and will serve the interests of those who can make money from that or can deflect policy away from areas that they don't want it to be addressing? So wisdom may start with... Do we really know what problems we are trying to solve with these technologies, or is this largely a battle to frame the problem so that my ideology or my belief system will dominate the solution-making? I'd suggest that part of wisdom is knowing the unpredictability of technological outcomes, and therefore part of uh, wise technological design is controllability and reversibility. So with one of the attractions of geoengineering by putting stuff into the atmosphere is that we know it dissipates after a couple of years. If we were to discover that there were deleterious consequences, we could let them abate. You know, um, so let me introduce a different kind of problem that I think uh, attaches itself to the conversation we're having right now. So l- let me posit uh, that the, the, other kind of, the, pro- the other kind of problem that, that attaches itself to this is, and, and I'll be the one who says this, you know, there are just too many people who don't know enough, right? Uh, people aren't, aren't well-informed enough. They're not thoughtful enough. They're not educated enough so that on this planet we're engaging in, in behavior right now that's really deleterious to the survival of the species, but somehow or other you can't reason with people. This must be. I'm saying, because people don't know enough. So why don't people know enough? Well, educating people is done kind of inefficiently, right? I mean, getting people really smart about stuff, it's, it happens in, at universities, which not everybody can afford to go to. Uh, there's something in, in, inherently hierarchical about that anyway. And so technologies come along and really begun to address this problem, too. We can have massive online courses. We can, you know, we can get knowledge out faster now using technology and have the billions of people on Earth know a lot more than they know now and, and maybe actually have a population that's better prepared to thoughtfully address problems like this. So um, all of you are involved with uh, institutions of higher learning. Um, so, uh, Wendell, is that a good te- technological fix? Is that a good technological solution to a problem? Um, massive online education. Well, yes and no. You certainly want a more informed electorate, but what actually constitutes an informed electorate is something that we can debate about a little bit here. Um, I would like to at least see an informed representative electorate, meaning people who are dedicated to be knowledgeable, to bring in the experts, to look at a field, and to see if we could use them in a way where others might be willing to defer to their judgments. And there's a lot of recommendations and experimentation going on on how you might proceed down that particular pathway. But more information or more knowledge isn't necessarily a healthy thing, particularly in this world where we're all so overwhelmed with knowledge as it is. Yeah, the, the research tends to show that um, people's techno- biases about technology policy issues just get reaffirmed, reaffirmed and deepened by whatever knowledge they happen to gain. If they, you know, you educate them about GMOs or nanotechnology or whatever, they just become more Luddite or less Luddite, whatever they were before. I think what's more important is having a free and open civil society. You see the smog problem in China. One of the causes of that is that they don't have a free and open society where there's any pressure can be brought to bear for cleaning up the air. And we, we it did, and we did have that kind of uh, uh, that kind of pressure. Kate Darling, what about that, though? I mean, some people would say, well, one of the ways to address this is really democratizing education, which is kind of going on right now. I mean, these massive online courses, in many cases, just open to pretty much anybody who wants to take them, uh, can deliver 
um, a kind of education to a much larger group of people, uh, a better education, a more sophisticated education, they can take in Jakarta a philosophy course taught by Jay Hughes and Wendell Wallach and, and get a lot smarter so they don't want to artificially induce a volcano just so, you know, or, or, or whatever plan, whatever harebrained scheme they're coming up with in Indonesia, Indonesia right now. So is that good techno-solutionism, the delivery of university-level education to a large group of people? Yeah, I, I can echo what's been said uh, by Wendell and James, which is that more information isn't necessarily better. In fact, we've seen that more information can be, you know, bad or, or just negligible because people, for instance, their opinions on global warming get more entrenched the more information that they actually have because we have these confirmation biases that just lead us to seek out the information that reinforces the views that we already have. Plus, another thing is that, you know, there's only so much information that we can take in, which is why we have things like a representative democracy where we are electing people that we trust to know better or that we trust to be able to access the experts and kind of outsource that that expertise to to people that we trust, because it's impossible for us to do it all ourselves. You know, uh, I'm skeptical about like just the fact that, you know, giving people access to more information is going to solve this problem. Of course, one response to that, um, Wendell, has been, well, maybe it's not information so much as it's critical, critical thinking, right? So in, right now in this country, we're having kind of a debate over the Common Core um, educational curriculum, which seems to sort of say, I, I, may, I may be completely misstating the premise of Common Core. So forget it this Common Core. Let me just sort of do a hypothetical one. Um, so, uh, Wendell, I'm uh, the head of some huge uh, education company, and I come to the leaders in America, and I say, really, you know, critical thinking is like anything else. You know, we can quantify it. We can figure out how, you know, how to teach it. We can figure out how to test whether we're teaching critical thinking well or not. Instead of having a whole bunch of kids learning stuff by rote, we'll, we'll teach them critical thinking. And we'll we'll test to make sure that they're learning to think critically. Um, and so we'll use the technology we have. We'll use algorithms. We'll use big data. You know, it's all there waiting for us. We can teach critical thinking so people aren't so stupid so they don't keep doing all of this basically self-abnegating stuff. Um, so, w- w- so once again, techno-solutionism? Techno-solutionism, for sure. (laughs) You know, critical thinking, if we understood critical thinking well enough, we'd probably already be teaching it. And the places where perhaps it gets taught the best are the ones where the most resources get thrown and they get the most selective students who perhaps have an instinct for critical thinking and just need to have it honed a little bit before they even get to the institutions. So I don't think it's it's that simple, not going to be solved through technical solutionism, probably a good example of something that can't be solved through a technical solution. That's like Gandhi said about Western civilization. It's a good idea. All right. We should try it sometime. All right. Let's take a little break here. We're talking techno-solutionism. We'll take your calls, 860-275-7266. We'll be back after this. And now I can get my cardio with my MTV. Yeah, you gotta love technology. I bought a microwave at a mini mall. I bought a minivan at a mega store. I eat fast food in the slow lane. I'm toll-free, bite-sized, ready-to-wear, and I come in all sizes. 
of fully equipped, factory authorized, hospital tested, clinically proven, scientifically formulated medical miracle. I've been pre-washed, pre-cooked, pre-heated, pre-screened, pre-approved, pre-packaged, post-dated, freeze-dried, double-wrapped, vacuum-packed, and I have an unlimited broadband capacity. All right, of course, that is the late uh, George Carlin uh, talking about what it's like to be a modern, uh, I guess, a 21st century uh, schizoid man. Uh, our number, 860-275-7266. We're talking about uh, a phenomenon broadly characterized as techno-solutionism. Uh, and uh, joining us now, Todd from Hamden. Yeah, Todd, you got a question? Hey, what's up, Colin? Yeah, I do. I- I'm-, I'm hearing your guests talk, and um, seems like no- everyone's talking in the future tense about what possibly will happen. They are futurists. And yeah, well, yeah, but if you're walking around every day, you see the tic-tac-toe in the sky. Mm. There's stuff happening now. And it's never an issue with technology. It's the people who use it. So I would, I would love to see if each of your guests can answer if they think anything's going on now, like uh, Professor David Keith of Harvard had been talking about for so many years. And to get a straight answer with that, because if we keep talking about things yeah, I think like we can, they're not happening, then we have an issue. Right. I think we can do that really easily. So let's pick something that's happening right now. So um, Jay Hughes, uh, back in the early years of this show, um, I enrolled with 23andMe. Uh, I, I spat into the test tube. I mailed that off. I got my genome done. It came back. It told me, you know, or as much as it could, any predilections for disease I might have, all kinds of things that maybe I should be on the lookout for. And I was looking at this and I was thinking, well, actually, you know, I should go in and hand this to my primary care physician. And basically, that ought to be the beginning of medical care in this country. Everybody should spit into a test tube, have their genome done, have their primary care physician have that stuff sitting right there on his iPad when he walks into the examination room. So so he knows a whole bunch of stuff to look out for. So that's something that is happening right now, the, the, at least the genome reading. It hasn't really been fully um, implicated into, into medicines. So what about that? Well, it's a great example because um, basically solutionism is corporate ideology. It's the ideology that whatever the corporations are trying to sell you is going to solve all of your problems and you don't need to think about any of the social context. And so the corporate ideology behind personal genomics was as soon as you had your own genome and the kinds of results they were going to tell you, it was going to tell you everything you needed to know about your personal health and your doctors were all going to jump on board and it was going to, you know, be the best thing since sliced bread. Well, I, I signed up for 23andMe also. It didn't tell me anything that was more interesting than my own personal family medical history. My doctor didn't want to look at it or talk to me about it at all. Um, and the general results of 23andMe have been underwhelming in terms of uh, its impact on research and things like that. On the other hand, the critics were saying this is going to reinforce racism. People are going to um, uh, not, uh, you know, take good care of themselves once they find out they have lower risks for various kinds of diseases. None of that was true either. You know, so on the one hand, there was techno hype. There was uh, overselling on the part of the personal genomics industry. But most of the people who used it used it responsibly, and it did not lead to deleterious social consequences. And personally, I think the FDA should stay out of it, and they're, they're personally coming down. They're right now coming down on 23andMe. Yes, I know. There's been a, a bit of a crackdown, a little slowdown in 23andMe. But, but Wendell, shouldn't the medical establishment want to know our genomes? I mean, that's, it, it's inherently valuable information in terms of delivering medical care efficiently. Well, it is and it isn't. You know, <laughs> it's... Again, this is happening now that a lot of people are having their genomes read, but it's actually futurism in terms of how valuable that information is, even to the medical profession. Mm -hmm. There are a few gene-specific diseases that we know about. There's a few that 
a few genes that make the professionals look a little bit more deeply, but we're actually a long ways away from even the professionals being able to read genomes in, in a very effective way, and partially because we're recognizing the complexity of gene expression and the fact that just because you have this or that gene doesn't necessarily tell you even the probabilities of your coming down with a particular uh, condition. So even personalized medicine is oversold. There's a group called TechCast, which takes the beliefs or attitudes or opinions of experts in various fields. And one of the questions was, when will 30% of treatments be driven by genetic information? And the prediction was that maybe 30% will be driven by 1935. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, so Kate Darling, okay, I feel like I'm the straw man for this whole show. I like keep bringing up technological fixes and, and you guys keep uh, beating me down. But I'll try another one. All right. So, um, uh, three or four years before her death, my mother started to exhibit the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, and she had Alzheimer's disease. And so I watched all kinds of complex care questions come up and trying to deal with them as best I could. She wanted to stay in her house. Could I have a home health aid? Could I have a 24-hour home health aid? She didn't want to go to a facility. Even when I put her in a facility, that was suboptimal in, in a whole bunch of different reasons. I mean, it, it, and, and so, you know, now reading your work, uh, Kate Darling, I'm thinking, you know, really – Maybe what she would have really benefited from for a while anyway was a robot, you know, some kind of uh, some kind of augmented artificial intelligence robot that could have monitored her needs, made it clear, figured out if she left the stove on. I mean, in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease, she's a little bit of a danger to herself for getting to turn off the stove and stuff like that. I want, you know, we want to know if she fell down, things like that. But she didn't want to leave her apartment. She would have been a lot happier there. So. Why, why not that? How, how about that as a techno solution? Um, a robot who basically provides or makes it possible for somebody within the early stages of Alzheimer's disease to not have to leave the place where he or she is comfortable. Yeah, you know, this, and this is a good example for technology that's happening right now. And part of the reason I'm so interested in it is that it's happening now and not, you know, in 20 years. Like, we're, we have to deal with, you know, the promises or, you know, potential harms of these technologies right now, and not enough people are talking about them. So for elderly care robots or using robots as assistants or social actors and, you know, medical situations, there's a lot of hype around, you know, this is going to make things so much better for your mom because, you know, it can save her from, you know, the stove situation or help her take her medicine or through social engagement actually make her happier. Like we're seeing these nursing home robots that actually, you know, help people get better because they're socially interacting with, with the robot. And then on the other side, you have people saying, well, but isn't this going to make you, you know, feel less obligated to go spend time with your mom? And aren't you kind of being replaced by this robot where really, you know, this human interaction that she could be having with you is so much more valuable? And what are, what's getting lost there? And so with this technology, like I, again, like was mentioned before by someone, it's all about the use and not about the technology itself, right? Are you using it to replace? Or are you using it to supplement? It's a good culture. I don't know, like, I'd be interested in hearing what others you know, have to say about this as well. Yeah, go ahead, Jay. Well, it's an interesting example also for cultural reasons that um, the Japanese and the Chinese turn out to have a lot better relationships with their personal caregiver robots. And so we have different cultural expectations of what it means to be taken care of in the United States than, than they do in those societies apparently. 
Although you could create, I mean, there are, there are all, always cultural issues with care for the elderly. I mean, my mother you know, grew up in rural Massachusetts. You know, she ultimately, you know, winds up being taken care of by people who are not from her background. A lot of the uh, care of the elderly these days is basically, seems for some inexplicable reason to be done by West Indian people, you know, who have heavy West Indian accents, which my mother couldn't even really understand that well. She didn't have a strong identification with them. They didn't have similar cultural stories. I mean, Wendell, a robot could be pro programmed to talk to my mother in a way that she'd be completely comfortable with, even show her images from her past that would be familiar and comforting to her. But, you know, the thing that would get lost would be the human element. Somehow or other, human beings solve each other's problems, uh, whether they're not from the same cultural background or not. Well, there are two sides to this. One is we keep talking about a robot could be as if a robot is being right now or has the capacity to have uh, much more functionality than the ones actually do that are being used um, in healthcare. They're actually very limited purpose machines and uh, a lot of looking at how far we can get in making them multipurpose, but they aren't that yet. But the second okay. part about the, this okay. is, is around the whole issue of care. Yes, some care is better than no care, but at this point, even dysfunctional human care may be better than a lot of forms of robotic care. What were you going to say, Kate? Uh, I just wanted to ask what he thought. What, Wendell, what do you think of the therapeutic seal? Yes, yes, it's very limited in what it can do, but we're seeing some great effects with dementia patients or patients you know, socializing actually around the robot because it's giving them a reason to talk to each other. And is, is the so, robot a seal? I, I, don't, I don't know about yes. that. Yeah. Peril. It's, uh, it's used therapeutically, but it's largely something you hold in your hand. It, it gives some responsiveness. It, it creates a sense of companionship, and it does become a focus for interaction. And we're seeing that in a lot of limited-purpose social robots that, can do, that are designed to do a few things. And in some cases, they become a distraction from human interaction. In, in many cases, they become, as Kate said, but, but look, the focus for human interaction. But there's a difference between a limited-purpose robot and what's being implied is if you could actually program a robot to be multi-purposed and responsive to your mother. We've known for a long time that companion animals extend the life and the happiness and the quality of life of senior citizens. And no one ever said, well, this companion animal isn't really your daughter. And this companion animal can't really uh, monitor your medications. And this companion animal can't call the, uh, the police when you fall down and can't get up. No, but it, it extends your life and extends your quality of life. And so, yes, contemporary robots aren't you know, very sophisticated in terms of their affective interaction or their communication abilities. But they're probably already better than your dog. Well, you know, Jay Hughes, let's, let's uh, uh, take an example that's not for the elderly. Um, there are certain devices, uh, self-tracking apps and things like that, things that you re- wear on your wrist. But that I, d- you, I, in fact, do. Yeah, I know. That's why I'm asking you. <laughs> so there are these things that can tell you how much you're exercising, and they're getting more and more sophisticated. I mean, ultimately, you know, you can wear stuff that even is monitoring, you know, how many calories you've ingested today and what the composition, how much sugar you've taken in today. But but, but at minimum, these things like Fitbit, which I think is what you've got, you know, these, these things that uh, monitor the your exercise levels and other things that either contribute to or detract from your health. So I'm assuming, since you're using it, you think that's good techno-solutionism. 
Well, you've seen me over the years, Colin. You've seen that I've lost 40 pounds in the last two years. Yeah, you look uh, fabulous. Yeah, it's because my life got gamified once I started wearing. This is not a Fitbit, by the way. This is a body media fit, but uh, not to get uh, partisan about it. But um, uh, once I started to wear this, and on a moment-to-moment basis, it gamified my life. How many steps I'd taken, how many minutes of exercise I'd done, how many calories uh, I was in deficit for the day. And, and that was transformative for me. Now, in the larger context of things, I understand how difficult it is for people to change their lifestyle habits. I don't think it's a solution for everyone. I happen to be a geek and really into the technology and the statistics. But I do think that personal wearable technology is going to have a transformative effect, especially when it starts to get into things like what you've actually eaten, reading that through your blood. Although, Kate, some of that also, um, well, at least one of the questions that springs up from that is, does that information stay in the possession of Jay Hughes? There's, uh, there's tons of information about people these days, which they kind of assume only they have access to. But, but presumably, a, a lot of this wearable technology is going to feed into some larger net of information about people. That's true. I mean, I don't think that that's a reason to dismiss the technology itself, but I do wish there were more conversation around, you know, data security, data privacy, and more transparency, you know, for people in terms of what what's happening with the data that they're sharing. And and so, Wendell, that also could lead to sort of a Gattaca-like thing where, you know, Jay Jay's uh, wearable monitor is telling everybody, telling somebody how incredibly fit he, incredibly fit he is, how good his diet is, uh, how much uh, a better risk he is for a whole bunch of things than somebody else who isn't getting as much exercise or eating a good diet. I mean, there are a lot of arguments for saying, well, maybe that information should be available. Maybe maybe Jay should reap the benefits in certain ways in I terms mean, of his harmony profile. Yeah, in terms of his, his email <laughs> harmony profile, his insurability, his employability, you know, maybe it should be known about him. Well, I think this is the difficulty is on all of these technologies, there's some real positive sides, and that's why people are embracing them. Mm-hmm. And nobody can take that away. So it's not like technical solutionism is a bad thing. There are many problems that get solved for people with the use of technology. I just happen to be somebody who's always stressing, yes, but what about this other side? And let's just keep our eyes open and be aware that all these issues that Kate just brought up are also in play. Jay, I have to say, on a personal uh, level, I'm a gamifier, too. Mm -hmm. And I've discovered there's some real hazards to this, including um, I had a Garmin on my bike uh, that I was using. And I'm the kind of person who competes against myself a lot. So if my average mile per hour was, you know, was whatever, was 14.3 yesterday, I've got to get it down to 14.2 today. Mm -hmm. And I'm watching it, watching it, watching it, you know, checking my speed, checking, you know, the amount of time it's taking me to to traverse the same course. And eventually I crashed into something because (laughs) – (laughs) I was looking at my Garmin a lot more than I was looking at the actual environment. I haven't run into anything on my elliptical trainer yet. But, But, you know, even even on exercise machines, for a while I was uh, lifting weights on those machines that do record your previous performances Mm -hmm. and tell you what your previous performance is. You have kind of, therefore, an urge, if you're a gamifier, to exceed your previous performance. And basically what the machines are doing is figuring out exactly at which point the overhead press is going to separate your rotator cuff because you put just (laughs) enough plates on it, you know, after last time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the gamifying even can get you in a little bit of trouble. Well, uh, the gamification critique is that this is basically, we're figuring out increasingly specific ways of gaming your dopamine system. And this is why people spend, you know, 20 hours a day playing game of uh, Warcraft or whatever, and uh, their life goes to to pot because their their dopamine system has been engineered somehow. But if if you can put it to a socially useful purpose, like personal health, I think it's great. All right. We're going to grab a quick break here. Our number, if you want to call 
call and talk about techno solutionism. Is the technical fix always the best one? Does it ever create a bigger problem? 860-275-7266. You may also tweet us at WNPR Colin, where our tweet master, our completely human tweet master, Greg Hill, is waiting to read your tweet. My hyper-smart toaster went feral and killed two wooden spoons and an egg beater. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Allison Ehrenreich and Brittany Hill. Greg Hill appeared in our intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by John Hodgman. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff fighting killer milkshake robots, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, our salute to movie trailers. And now, back to Colin. And I'm back with Wendell Wallach, Chair of Technology and Ethics at uh, Yale Interdisciplinary Center for Bioethics. Jay Hughes, Executive Director of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies at Trinity College. Kate Darling, a researcher at MIT Media Lab. So, Kate, let's let's take something where I can absolutely assure you that so far, techno-solutionism has been a good thing, and that would be auto safety, all right? Uh, the, number of deaths, uh, the number of deaths in automobiles goes down, 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 down every year. Why does it go down? Because of seatbelts, because of airbags, because of radar in order to check speed, because uh, uh, of other kinds of technological ways of even telling whether somebody's wearing a seatbelt from a distance, because, because of all this stuff, because we eventually decided to bring to bear our smarts as a civilization, we've been able to reduce auto fatalities dramatically in this country. On the other hand, just the other day I was driving with my son back from a farmer's market and on a winding road, and a guy passed us going in the other direction, and he kind of had his wrists sort of draped over the top of his steering wheel so that he could sort of look out at his, uh, out his windshield while he was texting. So, um, And I'm sort of worried about that guy, particularly if I'm out on my bike. And, and so... The, the idea of self-driving cars, where this idiot is no longer operating his car, then he can text as much as he wants. I'm thinking maybe self-driving cars are the next step, right, in terms of getting auto fatalities down. So should I be optimistic about that? <laughs> well, okay. And, and I really want to hear Wendell speak to this as well. But <laughs> I feel like automated vehicles are going to be a massive improvement for all the, te- the safety issues that you just mentioned. Um, what's what's really interesting to me, though, is that even though we're going to have much, much fewer accidents and people are going to be able to, you know, text or be drunk in their cars or whatever, the type of accidents that we're going to have that are rare um, are going to, I don't know how people are going to feel about them uh, because you get into some some pretty, you know, hairy situations where, like, if the car runs over a child, like, people might have a very visceral reaction to what happened to this technology, even though in, like, 99.9% of the cases, it's, it's so much safer than a human driver. Um, but I, I know Wendell has spoken about the trolley problem, so maybe he could speak to that. All right. Take it away, Wendell. Well, well, are we talking about the trolley problem, the sort of the famous ethical problem of, you know, do you save 
one person in or do you kill one person in order to save five? Well, Pat Lynn wrote an article just a few weeks ago that uh, in Wired magazine that ran on this, and it's basically, will your car make a decision to kill you in order to save two or, or, or three should other it. people, <laughs> should or should it, or yeah, should it make yeah. a decision yeah. to kill you? And how are we going to feel about that? Do we really want to turn over driving to a car that has the right to make that kind of decision? But this is more about the complications of how self-driving cars will change the whole landscape. So the National Safety Board says that 85% of accidents are being created by humans and their inattention. Obstensibly, we could get rid of all of that if we required everybody to use self-driving cars and then had to only deal with that small percentage of additional accidents that they would cause that humans wouldn't cause. But the reality is, will people want to be forced to give up their privilege of driving? Can we treat this like seatbelts? And who will actually give up driving? Will it be the good drivers or the jerks? You know, 20 years ago, it used to be considered rude to have an answering machine. And now it's considered rude not to have an answering machine. And then and people are giving up um, home phones altogether and just having their, their cell phones. So I, I think that things will change on this pretty quickly. It may be that some people will want to continue driving and then they'll realize how dumb it is to do that. Although I think Kate makes a great point, which is that the robotic car system is going to pay a higher price, even if it reduces child deaths 25 to 1. You know, that one child death that's blamable on the automated system is going to have, for some people, a bigger moral weight than than all the deaths that it somehow or other. That's confirmation bias right there. Yeah. Yeah. And even if it even if it reduces the child deaths or even if it reduces deaths overall by 50 percent. The robot chasing lawyers will sue the robotic companies <laughs> and the insurance companies for every death in which a robotic car is involved. Well, let, uh, Wendell, let's pick a really uh, – we're running out of time here, but let's pick a really far-fetched, crazy scenario that I'm sure is many, many years in the future. What if there were a drug that could diminish racism? What if there were a pill people could take or an injection that could make people left less racist? I know that's just uh, a crazy idea, but react to it. Well, it's not as crazy as uh, – as you're making it sound, actually, there's been some preliminary research with propranolol, a drug that is used to reduce the likelihood of coming down with PTSD if taken immediately after combat or a rape or some other traumatic incident. The likelihood of coming down with PTSD seems to reduce, be reduced significantly. So a group at Oxford used this drug to try and test whether implicit racism, your kind of unconscious racism, might also be reduced if you took this drug. And at least their preliminary research shows that it will. But what do we do with that kind of research? You know, should we start treating racism as a biochemical problem that can be treated only by therapists or you know, when would it be appropriate to use that drug to reduce somebody's racism because they were truly out of control? And when, it, when would it be, you know, absurd to use that drug because racism is really more um, a problem of cognition, a problem of, of human attitudes? Well, the racists don't think they have a problem. They think they're right. That's the right. problem with racists. Well, the, yeah, the two ends of the spectrum, on the one hand, it's obvious that some people are disabled by uh, xenophobia. And if xenophobia is a, ph- is a phobia. It's a being afraid of other people and what they're going to do to you. 
Um, and some people have an extreme version that just makes it impossible for them to get along in the world. On the other hand, we don't want to uh, end up like the Soviet Union, which diagnosed certain kinds of political thought right. as a form of psychiatric disorder. Yes, right. So you have an attitude which we've decided is a psychological problem. Mm-hmm. So, But, you know, Kate, in some ways it feels like, okay, so we're framing the problem without without answering it, right? And it's, it's desirable that people be less racist. But as Jay says, you don't want to start privileging certain attitudes and call, calling other ones disorders. So we can't just dump this stuff in the drinking water, as appealing as that might be. <laughs> so, so, so where's the, you know, I don't know, where's the Solomon's sword here? How do we... How do we cut this baby in half? Yeah, again, I mean, it's not about the technology. It's about the use of it, right? How how would this be used? And especially with this type of thing, I feel like ethically as a society, we probably wouldn't be willing to endorse, you know, the use of this in the drinking water. Um, but, yeah, this isn't. This isn't my area of expertise. <laughs> well, uh, well, so, I mean, solving the problems isn't anybody's area of expertise. Framing <laughs> the problems is everybody's area of expertise. You know, but we're running out of time here, Wendell. And, you know, one of the things I was talking to you guys before the show started, I ha- had this clip, which we now don't have time to play, about the 9-11 Museum, where uh, the curators have taken a 100-foot-long wall uh, and decided that they, as curators, uh, are are not objective enough to really sort of sketch out a timeline uh, from 9/11, all the things that are are linked in some ways to 9/11. So they've turned it over to an algorithm, uh, which they, I mean, maybe they think they're objective enough, but they think this is a more interesting way to do it, and let this algorithm just scan all kinds of information and figure out and put up on the wall what actually does seem to actually be linked to 9/11. Um, you know, and we only have about uh, about 30, 45 seconds left, but one of the things that strikes me whenever I hear things like this is we are kind of eager to turn a lot of things over to technology, right? There's there's part of us that, that thinks, you know, really, a machine really could do this better. I, I, I'm ready to hand this off to, to something that's smarter than I am. We certainly are. And the question is, you know, when's it a good thing to do? When's it a bad thing to do? Do we really want machines manipulating our emotions? Yes, no. Some cases we would. But my concern is, do we abrogate responsibility in doing so? Yeah, I I would react to that, but I'm so depressed over what I read on Facebook today. You know, the Facebook feed just seemed especially depressing, and I, I just don't. Yeah, go I, ahead, Jay. I just ask if people I think at this point they have any friend who could advise them better than Netflix's prediction algorithm <laughs> on what films they would enjoy and what they should watch. I could, I could advise you. Could, you. you I could advise you better you, than that, but, not, right. but only you. All right, I totally trust my own instincts about this. All right, Wendell Wallach, Jay Hughes, and Kate Darling. So great to talk to all of you. Thanks to all of you who listen. We'll be back tomorrow. Uh, appropriately enough for Jay with our salute to movie trailers in a world. I'm Kyone Wolf, Hyper Smart Toaster. Tell me what happened. The wooden spoons and egg beater did not identify themselves as non-combatants. Instead of inventing you, I should have been perfecting my combination nose hair trimmer barbecue lighter.